passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another riveting edition of Pollock and Thurston. I am John Pollock, joined by Brandon Thurston. A Did you get up to anything on Halloween, Brandon, on Tuesday night? Uh, I walked the dog, and it snowed. I don't know how it was in Toronto, but here in Buffalo, it was big, big flakes were falling from the sky on Halloween night. We had some warnings about snow, which we thankfully avoided, but I think they're not too far away. It's getting pretty pretty frigid up here in Toronto. We're, we're living up to Canadians and our stereotypes of... Uh, of winter. But yes, we have a lot to get into on this particular show. Uh, something spooky, Brandon. I've been listening. The, do, have you been following not so much the World Series, but the World Series ratings? This is pretty low. Not good. I'm hearing the end of baseball. It's done. It's a, I, I, they had a good run. Yeah. I think, uh, what's the commissioner's name? I think they're going to have to reconsider their, their TV deals for this. Rob Manfred is, I mean, this is it. They're going to it anymore. It's going to be over down to these scary 8 million viewers per week. But uh, we are going to be getting into uh, all of the latest news. But we definitely uh, wanted to have this person uh, back on the show, uh, one of one of my favorite guests that we have had on. And there is so much to discuss, not just with WWE returning to Saudi Arabia this coming Saturday with Crown Jewel, but also coming off uh, what was, all I can tell you is a spectacle from this past weekend in Saudi Arabia for the fight between Tyson Fury and Francis Ngannou we're talking about. The man behind Sports Politica. You've read his work in the New York Times, The Guardian, Bloody Elbow, Kareem Zidane, returning to the show. Hello, Kareem. Oh, it's a pleasure to be back, guys. How are you? Uh, we're doing we're doing pretty well. Um, none of us uh, flew over to uh, to Saudi Arabia this past weekend. The three of us might be the only people in combat sports who did not receive uh, invitations from from the kingdom. But I, I I can't say, Kareem, I had all that much interest in this fight. But come Saturday, just tuning into it, I just felt as a experiment and watching what this was. To me, at the end of it, it was like the fight was almost secondary to everything that you saw. Like this was just opulence times 10, where the world of Eminem and Vince McMahon and Kanye West intersected uh, with a boxing fight, an arena that was erected solely for the purpose of this fight. And I came away with it, Kareem, like this may not even be the future of combat sports it might be the now of combat sports like this is that was my conclusion at the end of saturday well honestly you mentioned vince mcmahon and i couldn't help but feel like everything we witnessed sort of was like a vince mcmahon wet dream there really like it was almost as if this was exactly what he would love wrestlemania to become one day in 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 a sense you think of if you connect WrestleMania and the idea of WrestleMania with bringing in celebrities, you know, and connecting uh, wrestling with 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 entertainment and celebrities, well, that's what Saudi Arabia was able to do this past weekend. Except they did it with boxing. You can really call it boxing. At the end of the day, the main event was fantastic, but it was not what anyone expected. Really, they were creating this extravagance to compensate for what could have been a real circus act or a terrible fight, or at least what people were anticipating to be a uh, 
a terrible fight. That's not what happened at all. Really, what we saw was amidst a, a global, another you know conflict in the Middle East, a war breaking out, you still had the most famous faces in the world flocking to Saudi Arabia to attend a boxing fight at the end, right? You had the Kanye West, the M&Ms, you had, I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo, The Undertaker was there. I mean, it was a spectacle, as you mentioned. And you know, a, a ring being erected from and, and just brought up in the center of the stage, an opening ceremony for a boxing event. It does feel like Saudi Arabia was out to prove a point, right? I've, made, I've, I've had to reflect on this following the event, thinking long and hard about how long Saudi Arabia has been preparing for you know, Riyadh season, as they call it. This is this whole boxing match was supposed to be the the uh, the inauguration of this year's uh, uh, Riyadh season, which is this winter festival that Saudi Arabia is hosting annually. It's supposed to be this big event that brings in tourism for the country, and that was the focus for weeks. They've been doing nothing but push Riyadh season. They created a music video for this fight. They, uh, you know erected an installation in uh, in London specifically showing these gaudy gaudy statues of the two of the two fighters involved uh, right by London Bridge uh, they i mean the, the list goes on and on for how they've been trying to direct focus specifically on on to Riyadh season i thought it was really interesting that while that did work for the most part i'd say i'd say you know the vast majority of the world that watched this event came out of this saying oh my goodness saudi arabia does look like it's going to be the future here it's proven a point and it's pulled off a fantastically produced event like we have to give them that at least the, the, the event was flawless in many ways uh but i had to, I, I i as an arab in particular as an egyptian i had to reflect on the fact that in the midst of this we're going through yet another war another conflict in the middle east one that's very close to my home this time as well mm-hmm. and it's the saudis are really acting like nothing happened whatsoever and i really wonder if that worked out or it didn't i mean i get the impression here that uh, they were going out of their way to hide that anything else was happening in the region, that a wider conflict was breaking out, or that Saudi was actually playing a role in this as well. So there are so many layers to this. Uh, I think after spending so much time trying to tell people that now Saudi Arabia is going beyond sports washing, John, I actually have to think that this might have been one of those events where distraction and distracting from other concerns was actually a main uh, criteria for Saudi Arabia. So overall, I think a, a really complex event that uh, that that requires a bit of nuance to really understand what's been going on and it also goes to really just emphasize that the drug of sport is just so intoxicating for somebody to tune in and you watch you know what was you know the, the story of this fight was an incredible one and here you see Francis Ngannou knocking down Tyson Fury and suddenly like you understand why it is so engrossing for fans to be able to distract themselves from the larger issues and the picture being painted here when that that image is going to last forever in people's memory that in a nutshell is what is the objective in something like this and i think we're only going to see bigger and larger events of this scale like i I would be curious to know if this was like the largest budget for a combat sports event in history. I would have to think it probably is when you take into all the considerations of what went into this coming out party. I'd love to. Here's going to be one of the issues we have when dealing with authoritarian regimes is getting that type of transparency in numbers. Apart from generally, you're not dealing with entities that where, where, where the laws that you're used to will apply here. But yeah, there's absolutely no transparency. So unless Saudi is aiming to push 
some PR about how uh, they, they did some extravagant spending here to, to create one of the biggest uh, entertainment events. I don't think we're ever going to really find out those figures. I mean, unless documents are leaked to journalists or journalists are able to, uh, you know, see contracts with their own eyes, I don't think we're going to be hearing about this uh, as easily, unfortunately. This is one of the downsides, really, when it comes to working with Saudi Arabia is you really won't be able to, to, to figure stuff like that out very easily. So when it comes to the, the coverage of the, the Ngano and Tyson Fury fight, was the, this was on ESPN Plus as a pay-per-view on, on their service. Was there much discussion about the, the political context of, of this fight in, in not, mainstream coverage? Honestly, not that I was aware of at all. Very, very little uh, discussion about it. I think I saw in The Guardian that uh, Donald McGay was a phenomenal boxing uh, reporter, actually, and I highly recommend people read his work and his interviews in particular with different athletes. He uh, wrote a specific article ahead of the fight while he was in Riyadh that uh, discussed, of course, Saudi shortcomings in terms of human rights abuses, and he highlighted a women's rights activist called Lojain al-Hathloul and spoke to Lojain's sister, uh, Lina Hathloul, who's, who's a well-known activist and Saudi dissident at the moment. And he told the story of how Lejain was, uh, was put into jail and Saudi jail, especially at, at the time where MBS was trying to present MBS being Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince and de facto leader of Saudi Arabia. At the time when MBS was attempting to show Saudi Arabia as a reformed country, he and, and the country that was, you know, changing the way women live, uh, in, in Saudi Arabia. This was around the same time that he jailed Lojain for uh, being a women's rights activist, for attempting to drive a car around in Saudi Arabia and push for more rights, push for an end for the guardianship laws. He ended up jailing her, and it was really only the international outcry that helped get Lojain out of prison. Unfortunately, Lojain is still under a, a travel ban in Saudi Arabia. So it's really just he expanded her prison really from, from four walls to the entire country, but she simply can't leave the country. So I was, I was really happy to see uh, Donald's reference there. You know, that Donald referenced this article. I think it was really important, but the fact that I was, that I even noticed it goes to show you that it was just, it was the only one that I saw ahead of the, ahead of the event. I did a piece for Bloody Elbow, of course, trying to explain the genesis of, of Fury and Nganu and why I thought Saudi Arabia was attempting to host this fight and why it had invested so much of its resources into hosting the fight, talking a lot about its push for tourism and its attempt to really capture the combat sports space. We've seen Saudi Arabia invest heavily in boxing events in particular. They've hosted some of the biggest heavyweight showdowns. We've seen them, uh, you know, plan for further heavyweight uh, events, right? Supposedly, we're supposed to be seeing Tyson Fury versus Alexander Usyk at some point. It might not be in, in late December. I highly doubt it'll take place in December, but we're supposed to see it. And if we do ever see that fight, I mean, arguably ahead of the fight, we can at least say this is one of the most anticipated heavyweight showdowns in a generation. Easily. And it's Saudi Arabia that brought the fight together, a fight that many boxing fans thought was, wasn't going to take place. That says a lot for Saudi. And now they have the Ngannou Fury fight under their belt. This is going to be a memory for MMA fans, for boxing fans, for a wide variety of reasons. As you both just mentioned, uh, these these are moments people don't forget very easily. You know, and people still talk about the Rumble in the Jungle, Thrill in Manila, all these different events. Saudi is getting some of those notches under its belt now. And that's really, really significant. It's even more significant when you think that 
combat sports isn't even Saudi's primary game here. Like really, even no matter what we see them spending in, in boxing and in combat sports, it's it's a drop in the bucket in comparison to what they're spending overall in, in, in various investments and in other sports, right? The, the money they've spent in, in soccer, football, whatever you want to refer to it as, far surpasses what they've spent in boxing so far. Uh, as for what the future holds, it's going to be really interesting because I think Saudi, I, ahead of the fight, I spoke to Luke Thomas and I told him I really think that, that uh, you know, you can forget about Las Vegas in terms of it being the so-called mecca of combat sports, that it's really going to be Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates in the future. And uh, some people did not really appreciate that statement, thought I was being ridiculous. And I think uh, they're, they're seeing it in a different light now that the fight's over and what Saudi Arabia is actually able to produce. And there's news today that Australia has dropped out of their bid for the World Cup in 2034. Mm-hmm. And that makes it all, all but certain that Saudi Arabia will get the World Cup in that year. Oh, uh, Gianni Infantino, the president of FIFA, has already announced, actually, that he's giving it to Saudi Arabia. And he announced this on Instagram, of all things. It's really ridiculous. You think back at, you know, ahead in 2010 or 20, 2009, whenever it was, when the voting happened for, for the World Cup to be hosted in Qatar, the outrage at the time and the, the discussions about, you know, where, where bags full of cash, you know, uh, uh, exchanged in terms for these votes, etc. Now we're talking about a World Cup being handed to Saudi Arabia with no votes, with no votes, with no discussion, all backdoor deals. And if anything proves to people, when I used to get this uh, this this statement a lot, saying well, sports washing doesn't work, and it doesn't work because you know I already know Saudis commit all these human rights abuses. What's the point? Well, guys, the point is, is that despite us knowing all of these abuses that Saudi Arabia has committed over the years, they are still an inevitable force. They're still getting all the big events. That's how we know all these tactics work. That's why we know their sports strategy is working, because no matter what abuses they commit, no matter what they will do in the future, nobody is going to part ways with the gold rush and the money that there is to make in Saudi Arabia. And we're seeing that right now with them literally getting a a World Cup handed to them with no opposition and no competition whatsoever. That is unheard of. That is unprecedented behavior. And I I hope people really wrap their heads around the scale of this and the amount of influence Saudi Arabia wields across sports now. And and the reason why we're having you on now and we had you on before is there's a WE event coming up on on Saturday. This one's in in Riyadh. Um, And and just to remind people who who may not be familiar what what the issue is around uh, Saudi Arabia's many uh, human rights violations. Uh, In in the time between we talked to you last, I've tried to keep up with with what's been happening there. And I've read that there's uh, a lot of killing of of Ethiopian migrants at the border of Saudi Arabia. Um, There is someone who is... uh, sentenced to death because of his tweets, because of his mm-hmm. online activity. So I wish you, if you could just speak to that and just why wrestling fans should care that there's a deal between WWE and, and the government of Saudi Arabia that's paying them $50 million per event and you know wh- why that's something they should care about. I like that you mentioned the government in particular because it's very different to say, you know, WWE hosting events in the United States, which in, in the United States in and of itself is not is not a, a, a remarkable country. Really, there's a lot of human rights abuses being committed here. Its foreign policy is terrible. We can talk about all of that. The difference is in the United States, there is no sports ministry. Has anyone ever thought about that? Really, there is no U.S. sports ministry. It's not how it works, right? All these things, you're working with private entities and private corporations, and it's very different to operating with Saudi Arabia where you're working for 
the government, right? For the purposes of a regime and a political entity, very, very different behavior. And that really comes out in how they present these relationships with their athletes. You've mentioned the, the human rights watch reports that Saudi, that Saudi border of, officers have been uh, massacring Ethiopian migrants attempting to cross into Saudi Arabia from Yemen. Now, these reports have been confirmed across various human rights organizations and the, and the figures and the quotes are really, really, really horrific. I'm not going to repeat them here, but uh, for those interested, you can read the, the very, very lengthy Human Rights Watch reports. What I found really interesting here is that that word came out about that as Francis Ngannou was preparing for his fight in Saudi Arabia. And I wrote about this at the time because I reached out to his management to see if Francis Ngannou, you know, himself an African migrant, had any comments about this. He had spoken out regularly about the abuses that African migrants face around the world. He chose not to do that with regards to Saudi Arabia. Now, there are two things we can think of here. We can think, well, he's got, why should he feel the need to speak out? He's got all this money that's coming in. He's got these opportunities. And we saw what the opportunity meant to him over this past weekend. So on a human level, on an athletic level, there's that reasoning. But I like to think of it a bit beyond that. A few months ago, I reported for the New York Times that that Leo Messi had a tourism partnership with Saudi Arabia, and we were able to show, along with my colleague Tariq Panja, we were able to show the details from that contract, uh, which we had seen ourselves, including the fact that Messi was making $25 million over three years to promote the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Uh, what was really, really interesting there was the fact that it also had a clause in it that Saudi Arabia, that Messi could not tarnish Saudi Arabia. It was basically a non-disparagement clause. Now, since then, I've been able to find that clause again or a similar clause to it in the, in the framework agreement between the PGA Golf Tour and Live Golf as well. So the merger that's apparently taking place right now, the framework agreement between them also has a non-disparagement clause stating that neither of the two entities can insult the other and particularly focusing on the PGA not making comments about Saudi Arabia. This was inserted after the fourth round of negotiations in terms of the contract. So it wasn't something that was, you know, standard practice or was there from the very beginning. This was inserted by by Saudi Arabia's legal team or the Live Golf's legal team, whichever it was in the case. Uh, I really do wonder, guys, if Francis Ngannou has a similar non-disparagement clause in his contract. And if that's the case, we're going to be seeing that across all the major athletes and celebrities that work with Saudi Arabia. They will have clauses potentially that, that say you'll get extra money if you promote the kingdom, if you say nice things about the kingdom, very much like what Messi does every time he posts a picture of Saudi Arabia, including some palm trees, he gets $2 million. I mean, that's a hell of a deal, right, for any athlete. I mean, Messi took it for $25 million over three years. Why wouldn't Ngannou take it? Why wouldn't anyone else take it if that was offered to them? So it goes to show you that this is another way that Saudi Arabia is attempting to control the global narrative. It's now no longer about distracting from human rights abuses. They couldn't care less. As Brandon mentioned, there's been an increase almost in the abuses and in the stark realities of these abuses that we're seeing from slaughtering migrants to some really, really harsh and cruel sentences that are being uh, handed down to People with Twitter accounts with like 20, 30 followers. These are scapegoats now. This is Mohammed bin Salman really emphasizing the new social contract he has with his people. It's a contract where it's saying basically, listen, I'm going to give you everything you could potentially want. Everything. All the major events are going to come here. All the uh, the concerts, all the sports, everything is going to be coming to Saudi Arabia. You're going to feel great. Just don't ever speak out about politics. If you do, nothing good's going to happen to you. 
And that's what we're seeing here. Those who choose to speak out in any way, shape or form are, ha- are faced with some horrifically aggressive and harsh uh, uh, punishments as a result. And that's not going to change. And unfortunately, as we see entities uh, like the WWE and all sorts of other major sports entities, I mean, it really doesn't stop at the WWE anymore. Uh, as we see them continue to work with Saudi Arabia and uh, focus on this pursuit of profit, uh, the more we're going to see Saudi Arabia continue to commit these abuses and spend even less time attempting to cover them up. Why would they need to anymore? We're seeing their end result, right? I saw this one quote. Um, this was from Fox News in September when they interviewed uh, Mohammed bin Salman and was asked about the the practice of sport washing. And his quote was, if sport washing is going to increase my GDP by way of 1%, then I will continue doing sport washing. It almost feels as though there's a certain brazenness now that has come exactly. where, I mean, you saw sort of the, the critical um, assessment that came really from so many big businesses and such towards Jamal Khashoggi. They have come out of that on the other side and have even strengthened themselves that it feels as though we can now say the quiet part out loud. Like this is what we are engaging in. And it feels as though there is a certain invincibility when it comes to this strategy. And another part that I've, I've heard you raise up this point, but it's astounding when you hear it that nearly 70% of Saudi Arabia's 34.8 million people are younger than 35. And when we're talking about big fights and concerts like that is feeding so much of your of your population base that i think they are more than happy for that trade off absolutely it's a modern day bread and circuses right it's exactly what the romans once used to do with the colosseum right but this is on just a much more expensive level and let's say hold the bread at this point they're well fed and everything's fine there in terms of the economy it's really about the circus at this point listen i come from egypt where we had very few outlets to speak out, to really voice any concerns or anything whatsoever. The outlet that we had was football, soccer, right? That was it. And you had groups like these hardcore, like, football groups like the ultras would rose up around 2007 and the only place you could feel like yourself and would be able to actually speak out was at a football game and that's where we started chanting political slogans targeting the police and the government actually voicing our concerns and that was terrifying that was terrifying to the egyptian government so much so that in the end uh, the ultras in, in egypt were actually really really important and pivotal when it came down to the 2011 Arab Spring and actually protesting on the streets of Cairo because they'd had experience combating the police in the past. Now, you compare this to Saudi Arabia, where if he does not keep that population happy and satisfied and able to express themselves and enjoy themselves, then he could go down a similar path that we went in Egypt, right? We had no choice but to use these stadiums and use our joint voices to voice our concerns and to state our rage and our anger. In Saudi Arabia, if Mohammed bin Salman doesn't offer them alternatives, this is exactly what's going to happen. And it's kind of like a you know, Frankenstein's monster thing right now that we're seeing because... He's giving them all these freedoms, freedoms that Saudi Arabians never had. I mean, I lived in Saudi when I was a kid for about a couple of years, never liked it, did not enjoy it whatsoever. And my family didn't enjoy the process. That's because there was nothing you could do as an extremely, extremely, strictly conservative country at the time. 
very different place now. And that's why all the kids coming up, the Gen Zs in Saudi Arabia, they absolutely love Mohammed bin Salman. But that comes at a at a price. If he does not continue to feed them uh, whatever they are looking for, really, from entertainment, etc., he's going to get a backlash eventually. And the more freedom he gives them, the more they're going to get used to these freedoms. So I wonder if, theoretically, one day they start expecting more than just entertainment events. What happens in 10 years when they're used to all this? Let's say... Let's say we make it to the World Cup in 2034, and it happens. Well, great. Ben Salman will have proven his 2030 vision, held the World Cup, would have been a great World Cup. Let's assume it's a great World Cup and everything goes well. Well, what happens next? What do the actual citizens of Saudi Arabia, who have now had decades of this sort of pseudo-Western experience, they no longer feel uh, diminished or uh, as a minority on the world stage or anything of the sort, they feel equal. What happens then? Do they start asking for more rights? Do they start demanding a change in the country and in the structure? Do they demand more power, create a constitutional monarchy rather than an absolute monarchy? Anything is really possible when it comes to Saudi Arabia's future. So as much as I see it as inevitable in many ways, this advancement of Saudi sports strategy, I am very curious to see is what it means long term as well. And I don't think any of us can answer that question right now. And just to add, the the amount of revenue that these events can make uh, are are much lower than the amount of money that the government is paying for them. So, so clearly there's some other value that the That's government true. is getting out of them. It's, it's, it's not just the the fact that they're attracting these exciting entertainment events that the local population enjoys, but it's that they're, they're paying well in excess of what these events would uh, draw on their own. Just, just to right. add to, to that's, that's the attraction for the, the content creators, if you will. I, I'm waiting for the, uh, the membership numbers for the new Mike Tyson gym that has opened up there. I'm sure that will be a heavily scrutinized <laughs> how many uh, people are, are joining his, his new gym. <laughs> But I want people. I want to. I want to make one more point, and I'm interested to get you guys' uh, thoughts on this. As we're seeing this sort of advancement in combat sports, we keep thinking that okay, the biggest thing they could potentially do is these big boxing fights. You know, they've got their crown jewel and greatest Royal Rumble events and stuff like that. What's stopping them legitimately from in the next five or ten years hosting a WrestleMania? People would say, well, well, I mean, who's going? How are you going to fill up a hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand seat stadium? In Saudi Arabia, Americans aren't going to travel in hordes. Well, yeah, but there's a whole other world of people who would love to attend a WrestleMania, very much like the people who went and attended the 2022 World Cup in Qatar, right? Uh, sure, you had your Brits, your Germans, all these people from the, from the famous footballing nations were there, but not in the same quantities as there were Arabs, as there were people from Southeast Asia, from India, etc. I mean, if India is supposed to be one of the populations that loves wrestling the most, then why wouldn't you want them to be have better access to a WrestleMania potentially? Make it so it's accessible not just to the wealthiest who can travel to the United States, the ones who are able to secure visas. What's really stopping the WWE from one day agreeing to a WrestleMania in Saudi, especially since we absolutely know Saudi can pay the site fees? <laughs> I, I think it's inevitable, Kareem. I, and I don't think the buy-in is going to be on WWE's end. I think it will be, um, the, the Saudi Arabian government, the general entertainment authority mm-hmm. viewing it as a, a valuable enough, um, event that can attract tourism that instead of just a, you know, four week build to a pay-per-view, we get a whole WrestleMania season dedicated mm-hmm. to a commercial for Saudi Arabia. Like I can only imagine a Vince McMahon sitting there in the front row watching this spectacle. And instantly attracting like his product to this kind of pomp and circumstance. I, I feel it is 
almost inevitable that we will see an event of that scale in Saudi Arabia during, you know, we're, we're only at the midway point of this 10 year deal. Yeah. It's it's true. And I really think that what we're approaching, we've got six years until 2030, right, which is supposed to be the grand unveiling, the final year of of, uh, of, of MBS's Vision 2030, you know, master plan. Why not host a major event like WrestleMania in 2030, right? One, another, since he can't have the World Cup in 2030, which was originally when he wanted it, I mean, WrestleMania sounds like a big deal, doesn't it? Yeah, their their ten year deal. I I think because the the pandemic is going to get extended by about one year, so maybe it expires in twenty twenty eight or maybe even twenty twenty nine. Um, a lot of the people who attend WrestleMania and it's the the two two night stadium event, but then they'll do they'll do an NXT event and a Raw and a SmackDown probably mm-hmm. in the same region. Um, I mean, if if the money is enough, I I guess that that satisfies uh, what they need as far as people traveling in to make it truly the spectacle that WrestleMania is with the stadium. I, I, I guess I'd have to wonder if people feel, do they feel safe? Does the average wrestling fan who, who might attend WrestleMania this year in Philadelphia, are they going to feel comfortable traveling to, to Saudi Arabia? Like, do they feel safe there? I guess is a question that I, I would think about. Or go through their Twitter absolutely. beforehand. <laughs> yes, Just like, I'm not even joking. Like that's, I mean, yeah. that is, that it's is something that's, true. We've had, you know, yeah, we've had a Lebanese guy get uh, get arrested in Saudi Arabia for for a Lebanese doctor get arrested for his tweets, right? So absolutely, what you're saying is is not an exaggeration in the slightest. But Brandon, to answer what you're saying, I think I think if you're hosting a WWE a WrestleMania in Saudi Arabia, you're not really looking for the same audience that was at the Philadelphia one, right? There is, I mean, why would it have to be the exact same audience when there's a whole other world of people from you know from southeast asia and onwards and then the middle east that could fill up those stadiums on those nights right it's a matter of how we visualize the audiences of wrestling being if we keep talking about these events being global sports and we have to including i mean i speak i speak for all sports now and entertainment rather than just the wwe if we're going to keep talking about our favorite sports as being global well at some point we have to start acting like they're global right that they're not simply taken from the Western lens or from the US-based lens, right? So this is where Saudi has that advantage because not only does it have the money to back it up, but it has a whole world that it's already trying to attract through its tourism. I tell people all the time when you see billboards of Cristiano Ronaldo and it says visit Saudi Arabia next to it, those billboards aren't aimed for people in Germany. They're aimed for people in Egypt. That's where I see those those ads all the time, right? I see them on the highways in Egypt. You, and you see them in Bahrain. You see them in neighboring areas like that, right? That's the areas that Saudi Arabia is targeting right now for its tourism. It's not the United States. They couldn't care less about the United States. I also want to get some of your thoughts because it caught some people off guard when the UFC announced their own uh, partnership with the General Entertainment Authority in Saudi Arabia. They're going to bring a fight night card to the country on March the 2nd of next year. And maybe if you could also explain what the, what the, um, resistances between the UAE and Saudi Arabia? And do you feel like the UFC can coexist by having prominent positions in both regions of the world? Oof. I honestly was a bit surprised. I thought it made sense when Saudi Arabia invested in the PFL because I thought, okay, well, if if the UFC is tied in with uh, with the United Arab Emirates, at least especially in the region as its exclusive home, then it would make sense that Saudi Arabia would want to find some way to compete against uh, the UFC and against its main geo- geopolitical rival in the region, being the United Arab Emirates. For those who don't know, Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed, also known as MBZ, are not fans of each other at the moment. Once upon a time, MBS used to consider MBZ his mentor 
in the region. But as of now, they're they're political ambitions do not align and therefore they're not very friendly with each other. You're seeing this in how both are handling the Saudi-led, I guess, coalition that's fighting in Yemen right now. Uh, Saudi Arabia wants to make peace with the Yemeni government that it it sponsors, that it supports. But uh, uh, the United Arab Emirates, on the other hand, is on the other side supporting the Houthi coalition. And that's not really working out very great right now. And it's only increasing a massive humanitarian crisis. That's just one example. So if you take what they're willing to do in war and you apply that now to combat sports, it kind of makes sense here, really, that the UAE would not be very happy with the UFC going and hosting events in Saudi Arabia. I honestly don't understand how this came to be, but it might make sense when you think of the fact that the UFC is only taking a fight night event to Saudi Arabia. I had to think about this for a while because it seems really pathetic. I said this on Luke's show as well. It really is a pathetic thing when after what we've seen this past weekend and just generally with the extravagance we see in Saudi Arabia's events and the fact that whenever they want something in their country, they want the very best of it. For the UFC to think it can slice together a piece of shit card and and send it to Saudi Arabia and that people are going to be happy because it's the UFC, well, then I really can't wait to watch the UFC fail in Saudi Arabia because that's what's going to happen. Saudi's not going to buy that. If you're going to send them, you know, a random, you know, Egyptian or I don't know, whatever Arab fighters there, if you're going to give them Bilal Muhammad to fight, maybe now it works because of the pro-Palestine stuff and, and there's extra support there. But just in general, you send them an Arab fighter who's not Saudi to fight there, they're not going to care, right? You're going to give them anything other than big title fights, they're not going to care. So I don't really know what the UFC is trying to do. It seems arrogant and it seems a bit pathetic so far, but you know, We'll hold off until next March and find out. But we know that when they go to the UAE, their annual show has to have a title fight in it. That's part of the arrangement, right? It's a numbered, it's a numbered uh, UFC event and it has a title fight, right? We've seen this over the past few years. They bring in all their big Arab champions. There has been no indication so far that that's going to be the partnership with Saudi Arabia. So it seems for the first time we've seen in sports in a while, Saudi got the short end of the stick there. And if that's the case, they're going to immediately realize this and they're not going to want to continue this partnership. Or you'll see them really squeeze the UFC further through the PFL. I'm really interested to see what happens there. I think we still have a lot of exceptionalism in MMA thinking that nothing can ever you know, trounce the UFC. I don't think that's true. I really don't think that's true. We're seeing that play out in, in, in the PJ live golf situation now, where the PJ was extremely arrogant in thinking that it didn't need to partner with Saudi Arabia. Before all this stuff happened with the merger, Saudi officials went to the PJ and said, we'd like to partner with you. We'd like to help you. And the PJ said, no, thanks. We're not interested. I mean, I bet they wish they changed their mind now, right? It goes to show you what, what Saudi Arabia can do. I understand the UFC's contracts are really, uh, are really prohibitive exactly right but eventually eventually over the years people are going to see better opportunities outside of the ufc the ufc is not going to be able to offer the best money it's not going to be it's not going to be willing to do so and people are going to want to go elsewhere and i think saudi arabia really had a big boom a big successful moment by proving that with their investment in francis Ngannou. right they took they took a big risk they took a big risk investing in him and bringing him over to fight tyson fury and then to invest that much money in the whole extravagance of the show and he paid off for them so many other fighters now are going to want to look at that and say, oh, I can't wait for Saudi to back me up and invest in me as well. I bet you anything Conor McGregor wishes he didn't have a contract with the UFC right now and that he could, you know, <laughs> just say, screw off, I'm going to Saudi Arabia. Because I bet you anything that's the situation he's feeling right now. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what the UFC uh, 
how the UFC handles itself in Saudi Arabia. Do you also look at maybe the next step? We have seen, you know, Saudi Arabia linked to F1 to the WWE when it comes to an actual ownership stake, if not purchasing it outright. They have not come away with with those brands. But do you feel like that is something that inevitably they are going to continue to kick the tires on or the idea of just continuing to import the biggest name celebrities and talents and leagues that are coming to our country? Like, do you see ownership as something inevitable when it comes to all of these different sports and entertainment vehicles? Not necessarily. I think it's going to matter to them to have influence and to exert control. Whether they do that through, you know, excessive sponsorships, whether they do that by simply having uh, relationships with all of the all those top stars in a specific sport. Like, I don't feel the need. Uh, let's let's talk about soccer, football for for a second here. They instead of purchasing multiple teams, they went and purchased. Uh, Newcastle United in the English Premier League, and they're doing really well with that team. That team has since since the since the purchase in late 2021, they're now back in the Champions League. They're doing phenomenally there. It's really quite a sight to see, and I, that's just an, that's just another example of Saudi saying, "Listen, we're not just throwing money at this. We're trying to make this really work here." But since then, they haven't really spent that much on just acquiring the rest of global football. What they have done is they've been, they've done they, they're sponsoring various events and they're bringing in they're poaching a lot of players to bring into their own domestic league, sort of propping up their own entities. Now, we're, I think we're going to see a lot more of that where Saudi Arabia starts to develop Saudi-owned or Saudi-homegrown talent or or events and 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 competitions right like their domestic football league because i think that at the end of the day if we're talking about initially they were trying to bring whatever event was willing to work with them and we're going to talk about that as like sports washing stage one for saudi arabia well now we're far beyond that right now what they're doing is they're trying to project strength pride prestige nationalism right this is a this is a branding exercise for saudi arabia right and one that works both domestically and on foreign soil as well so it's really i don't think they need to own all the teams to do so i think they need to own enough of sports to continue to influence it as we've seen in football they own enough and they have enough influence that they were able to secure a world cup without any competition now they didn't need to own a bunch of leagues to do so, right? They just had to have enough sponsorships in the right places. They need to have the right tournaments and need to have alliances within national federations. So it does require investments of different kinds, but not necessarily always going to be ownership. I think it depends on sport to sport, really. My, my last. Oh, you go ahead, Brandon. Just okay. Just one more thing. So what we're probably going to talk about in a little while is that um, Endeavor is being taken private by a big investment firm called Silver Lake. But the, there's news today that Mubadala is going to be part of this bid as well, which is the UAE's, correct me if I'm wrong, the UAE uh, sovereign wealth fund. So, I mean, do you see that, that, you know, do you see that playing into, I mean, Endeavor controls TKO, which is WE and UFC. Does that play into any of the story? Well, that's interesting. You know, you're catching me. This is I hadn't I hadn't heard this news. Very actually. new news. Yeah. This is this is this is so. This is first of all very very interesting. Uh, well, that just expands the the UAE's influence in the UFC. I think. Who? Let's see this. And for those so, that might so, not um, re- remember this fact, that it was uh, around 2010 when UFC started going to right. Abu Dhabi that. Um, Flash Entertainment, which was a subsidiary, actually had 10% of the company, which they had until the Endeavor purchase in 2016. And in time, Endeavor 
bought that back. But for a long time, Abu Dhabi had a stake in the UFC during its growth years. And they only bought it back uh, like a few years ago, if I'm not mistaken, like they yes. didn't buy it back during the initial. Uh, it was shortly buy- after the sale. Yeah, it was a couple of years or so after, I think, something like that, around 2018 or 2017, when it when it finally happened. Listen, I think this is yet another example of what, as much as we can talk about Saudi Arabia, we cannot underestimate the United Arab Emirates. The United Arab Emirates has been doing this a lot longer than Saudi Arabia. They've been very, very savvy in the process, and they have no shortage of resources either. I think. Uh, the UAE, for good and for bad, gets us gets a lot of the same sort of reputation that Canada does alongside the United States. The United States is is the loud, boisterous one, gets all the attention and the controversy, while Canada seems to you know slide away with whatever it's doing uh, a lot more subtly. I think that the United Arab Emirates has a lot of that same sometimes issue, sometimes benefit. Right when it comes to its sports strategy. Fewer people have really paid attention to it outside of, you know, Manchester City. I recently wrote an article talking about how the UAE has been a home, a global home for combat sports for a very long time through its influence in jiu-jitsu, right? And we're seeing that beyond jiu-jitsu, it was the exclusive home for the UFC for in, in the Arab world for a very, very, very long time. I don't think the UAE is planning on giving up the mantle of a global hub for combat sports anytime soon. I think it's well set up. It might even be better set up than Saudi Arabia long term to maintain a handle on that, just due to the fact that it has spent a lot longer ingraining combat sports into into the fabric of its society. When you think about it, jiu-jitsu is a national sport in the United Arab Emirates. It is mandatory and practiced in uh, many school curriculums in the country, in various emirates in the country. It's also mandatory in the police force and in the military. So they've managed to take combat sports and not just apply it as a form of soft power. And mind you, they have an actual soft power council in the government. Talk about them really being aware of the benefits of sports and the influence they can wield through sports. They have a soft power council that is actually headed by Sheikh Mansour, who's the guy who owns Manchester City. So they've been doing this for a very long time. They're blatant about it as well. But they've been better at integrating it into the fabric of society. Saudi Arabia is doing that with football because football is its big sport, its national sport, and they have a good, strong history with it. Can they do that with combat sports? I'm not 100% sure. We'll find out, I guess, right? We know that Saudi, the Saudi audience has loved WWE for a long time because WWE has been trying to hold events there for a long time. It's always one of the regions when I grew up in the Gulf, wrestling was very, very popular during the Attitude Era. Very, very popular. So I can see why they still have an attachment to wrestling and I can see it in football. Will we see this hold out in boxing and the rest of the way it does and the UFC as it does in the UAE? We'll find out. Just to clarify the ownership, so Endeavor is currently already, I think, about 71% owned by Silver Lake. I guess if uh, Mubadala gets involved, maybe they could own 29%. Mm-hmm. That entity controls 51% of TKO. So it's it would be it wouldn't be control, but but influence mm-hmm. maybe. Oh yeah, my so last influence. my last thing for you, Kareem, is that as well, like watching this on Saturday, we can certainly look at this as one of the most powerful brands in sports is ESPN. And that comes with a halo effect that they benefited from on Saturday. And I just look at, you know, the state of, you know, ESPN and their loss of cable subscribers. Like they are certainly feeling this, this cable crunch like everybody else. And it sort of just gets into that debate as well. Like would a conversation like this be happening on a ESPN broadcast at this point when are you covering this as a news event or are you in business with 
an entity like this. And that is certainly an added uh, portion of this. Like there are some great reporters at ESPN, but that is sort of the mixture of you're in business with these entities that you're also supposed to be covering. I think that's always been the issue with ESPN, though, hasn't it? Despite the fact that, yes, there have been fantastic reporters at ESPN, it always felt like a massive conflict of interest. And we really saw that with the UFC as well over the years and its relationship with the UFC. Uh, regularly ignored various issues with the UFC when it visited different places, be it the UAE, you know, be it its relationship, the UFC's uh, clear relationship with Ramzan Kadyrov. That is never mentioned on a on an ESPN broadcast. The one time I wrote an article for ESPN, it was ahead of the UFC's first visit to Russia in 2018, I think, and I simply wrote an article stating, I think at the time, why the various reasons why. Uh, uh, the UFC was interested in, in holding an event in Russia and what, what the Russia market even meant. It wasn't even a, it really, in, 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 by the standard of my reporting generally, it was a very tame, tame article. And the UFC really came back hard at uh, ESPN's editorial team at the time, uh, multiple of whom don't even work at ESPN anymore. So I'm comfortable telling this story. But uh, I was amazed just how much control the UFC thought it could exert on ESPN. They didn't end up removing my story at all. As a matter of fact, they stood by it, which I respect. Again, it was a very tame story. There was nothing not to stand by. But I think the UFC was just horrified by the idea of me even reporting on ESPN, that they had to you know, lash out somehow at the team. But that goes to show you... The UFC was so arrogant, they think they can just immediately attack a media entity just because they work with them, right? That's that's the type of relationship ESPN opens itself up with. And I need to stress this. If they thought working with the UFC was bad, they have seen nothing yet when it comes to Saudi Arabia. Well, Kareem, it's... Uh... It is always uh, so enlightening to uh, to chat with you and uh, just uh, pick your brain. That to me are such you know necessary discussions when it comes to all of these shows. And I think you know as we continue to go down the path of this WWE relationship, I I, th- I think it's very hard for a lot of people to just open themselves up to to look at this and kind of look under the rock. And it's a lot easier to just uh, sit back and enjoy the entertainment portion of it. And it's. It's very tricky. Like I can certainly look at the the government's actions and a lot of these atrocities that we speak of, while at the same time, I don't think I would ever be able to speak to a 25-year-old Saudi Arabian fan that is experiencing all of this, nor want to take this entertainment away from them at the same time. But I think both sides do need to be represented. And it, it's often, you know, these kinds of discussions that I don't think are happening at, at near enough um, uh, frequency. Which is why I really appreciate you guys having me on and continuing to have this discussion. Uh, where can everyone uh, follow your work, uh, uh, Kareem? Tell us about uh, Sports Politica and anything else you have coming up. Yes, you can. You can absolutely follow my newsletter at sportspolitica.news. Uh, and uh, you'll find my work on or you'll find me on Twitter as well. And my work still appears on The Guardian and The New York Times. You'll find my work in all these different places, <laughs> depending on what issues are taking place around the world, of course. <laughs> Uh, I think you'll be a very, very busy journalist for uh, for, for probably years to come, uh, Kareem. And we appreciate you. You're uh, you're a necessary voice out there, and uh, always an open door to uh, to join us. So thank you so much, Kareem. Oh, it's Thanks. a pleasure. Thank you guys so much. Take this post wrestling podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast. Financial literacy can be daunting, but it's one of the most valuable things you can equip yourself with. On Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast. Their trusted financial journalists offer easily digestible conversational discussions on topics like balancing your portfolio, 
If you think an ETF is one of Cena's five moves of doom, this show might be for you. Planning for your tax bills this April, so you don't have to worry about a visit from Erwin R. Scheister. And putting away more money for retirement, because unlike most wrestlers at the end of their careers, most of us should only plan on retiring once. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. All right, Kareem Zidane, everyone uh, joining us. As, uh, that, was our, that was our crown jewel uh, preview show right there. Yes. yes. This weekend. Did you, did you catch any of, of Saturday's broadcast? Did you see any of the um, uh, j- just anything, whether it be the uh, the Vince McMahon Undertaker media rounds that they did? I did they do rounds that they, they talked no, to? They, um, they basically did three minutes of questions. Yes. And that was about all Vince had in him, which I'm sure he was kicking and screaming as he was alerted that he was going to be released to the, the scrum. Yeah, I, I saw highlights of, of the fight in preparation today. Um, and I did, and I did see Vince and Patreon's very own, The Undertaker, uh, speak with a member of the, the MMA media. My one opportunity to try and uh, get Vince McMahon uh, on the record was when they were announcing a SummerSlam here in Toronto. This is years and years ago. And he was going, 2004. Yeah. So this is a long okay. time ago. And so he does his press conference and then he, a scrum forms around him, but he's only speaking to TSN, which is the broadcaster of WWE programming here in Canada, does his interview of two to three minutes. And I'm right there. So he turns around to leave and I'm right there. And I just start interviewing him and his, we're not doing any more interviews today. And he just walks off. But I, that was my best try to just uh, corner him and, uh, and start asking. So uh, I was over one there on my, my Vince McMahon interview attempt, but maybe, maybe yeah. someday. He was there with the, with the Undertaker and uh, Vince McMahon getting a front row seat. I don't know where the Undertaker sat because if you saw like that front row, Vince McMahon made it into the front row with like Eminem and several others. And I don't know where the Undertaker was. I don't know where he was seated. Okay. Uh, but it was, it was just an unbelievable spectacle to watch this. And this is where I just think this is only like this past weekend. It felt like this is what all these years have been building towards when it comes to a major a boxing event that they can just put everything behind and give you a showcase. Like this is what we have built and we can only get bigger from this. Like the, the budget for this had to have been astronomically high. And like they flew in something like a hundred boxers from past and present, just, just to be here, just as window dressing. And it was just a nonstop uh, procession of celebrities, athletes. Like this was a statement if there ever was one. He said he was going to go meet, uh, he might t- talk to, uh, MBS later. They might have watched Raw together on Monday, perhaps. Right. Maybe, maybe they've, I mean, I, I can't rule out legitimately that they didn't have some sort of dispute directly. I mean, that's what at least one talent was under the impression of back in Halloween 2019, I think, right? Where they were all stranded in Riyadh. Um, uh, but maybe they're on better terms now. Well, you know, that's, these things happen in relationships. You know what I mean? Like you, you get s- stranded flight issues, flight issues, mechanical uh, issues. Yes. We have a few stories to, to go through last week. As soon as we finished the, uh, the hall of fame show that we did with Alan Farrell, which a lot of people seem to enjoy. As soon as we finished, uh, Brandon, you casually mentioned, uh, I think that Endeavor's going private. And that was, that was how we, uh, left off the air. Uh, last Wednesday. So in the past week, and you mentioned a bit about this during the interview, is that it appears that Endeavor could be going back to a, a private company, um, this at the behest of Silver Lake, which is the majority controller of Endeavor, if I have that accurate. 
Silver Lake is the owner of approximately 71% of the voting power. I think they own a similar number of shares. Yeah. So that this is, uh, Egon Durbin's, uh, private equity firm. Um, as we, as we mentioned, there's Mubadala, who's a UAE private equity firm. Uh, they might get involved in this. Uh, this is just Endeavor though. So Endeavor controls, does control TKO. And owns 51% of the shares. Uh, does this mean that much in the immediate term for WWE and UFC? I don't think so. Um, I've, I've seen people react to me on Twitter. Does, does this mean that Vince is coming back? I mean, no, no more than it would otherwise. Um, it would mean that TKO would still be a publicly traded company. They're both going to report earnings next week regardless of this because I don't think they're going private before the earnings call. Uh, but uh, TKO would remain a publicly traded company. They might be controlled by a private company rather than a public company. Um, Ari Emanuel has said, and he said at, at the, the Bloomberg uh, Screen Time conference, that uh, you know that they're unhappy with the way that Wall Street is valuing the stock. They thought that taking UFC out of Endeavor might uh, allow the non-UFC Endeavor assets to be valued more to their liking, but that hasn't happened yet. Um, it is pretty fast. They're not waiting more than a month and a half. Merger just closed middle of September, uh, and they're already taking taking these steps. Yeah, the the Endeavor stock, I mean, it, it got like a minor increase from this news. It's trading around 23.30 at last check today. And the TKO stock, uh, again, like a, a like a minor bump. It wasn't like nothing, but relatively small in the grand scheme of things that this right. and if, if you look at that, that when, looks like a big bump right there but it's i mean it's right what we're talking like under so the, the bump is like right here i think um but if you go back to so endeavor's only been a publicly traded company since april 2021 so they haven't been public forever uh but that's still it did get a nice bump they're up to 23 and a half dollars or so today but it's still off of what the ipo was which was 27 and a half so there's that and next week will be the very first uh tko Earnings yes. call. It's going to be happening Tuesday night and Wednesday. We will be live. And I think uh, the focus of our show next week will be uh, the TKO earnings call. Who is on the call? What is said? I'm sure this will be, um, uh, I don't know how much this story might, uh, permeate into the discussions, but I'm very curious. Do, do we have the returning characters in terms of, uh, the Q and a portion? Who will be represented? Uh, will, uh, will Laura Martin be back? She hasn't been on a call in a while. Um, this so is her time if, for a big return. I don't know if Needham is still covering uh, W slash TKO stock, uh, but Endeavor is, is reporting earnings the very next day, which might might be, it's, there's probably some minor news coming out of that. Uh, but I, I don't expect Vince to be on there. You still think Vince is going to talk on this earnings call? I'm I'm low on it. Were you, were you at all surprised just the fact like the optics of whether it was by request or by suggestion that Vince McMahon be the the front facing representative this past week, like do you think that was a request on behalf of the government? Was that a like we never see Vince McMahon in public right. anymore? Like this is the guy that wanted the shot edited out of Hitman Hart of him limping after the shot from Bret Hart, and here he is going in front of all these cameras with a cane after his surgery. Uh, this is a guy that is extremely. Um, paranoid about his his public appearance and this was a rare sighting by him by choice this was not him walking out of a restaurant and being uh, caught with a photo um going but it was you know front and center yeah yeah i mean look at the context you, you mentioned all the celebrities that were there eminem connie west um yeah i would think that, that this was part of you know part of something that they were asked to do Peacock, they reported uh, 28 million subscribers for this past quarter, a increase of 4 million. Um, 
bringing in revenue of $830 million, still finding a way to lose $565 million for the quarter. Uh, you had an astounding chart of the losses that this Peacock has lost during its, what, two and a half years of existence. Like this is like in a... And they've been spending a little bit before that, but yes. $6.8 billion this thing has lost altogether. Yes. Well, so these are losses that are expected. It's not like uh, we were waiting for the results to see if they made money or not and and found out they're not. I mean, they expect to peak losses, I think, next year. So me me and Wade drew the line at four billion to lose on post wrestling. Like those are expected losses. You know what I mean? Like the, you gotta, you gotta crack some eggs, you know what I mean? To make an omelet. Right. I, so uh, maybe they'll make money on this business eventually. Comcast is subsidizing this all, of course, with their cable subscriptions and their internet subscriptions. Comcast is a much bigger business that also owns peacock which is inside of nbc universal so i don't maybe the streaming business will be profitable um peacock is not one of the more successful ones in terms of subscribers 28 subscribers is more than they had before and they they continue to grow uh they they are neck and neck now with espn plus we'll we'll see what espn plus's updated numbers are next week when they report but but they're close like they're they're pretty close together now yeah they're 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 right next to espn plus um in terms of actual consumption when we see the net the Nielsen gauge, they're down there in the bottom in the, in the, the decimals of a percent battling it out with the likes of, um, Paramount and even Max and, uh, ESPN plus not even charted, uh, on, on those charts. But yeah, they're, um, it's in continuing to grow the number of homes, I would think that, uh, WPLEs can be seen in, which has been a good thing for, for WWE and financially, certainly they're getting their $200 million, uh, a year. Um, yeah, when you look at the loss of so 6.8 billion over the course of how many years? So the, not the entirety of, of this timeline is WWE on Peacock. Uh, they're missing about a year. So these losses start in Q1 2020. Uh, but they're going to get, you know, this is a $200 million a year deal for WWE to be on Peacock. It's going to go five years. That's a billion dollars. So some of those, a lot of those big chunk of those losses will be attributed to rights fees to, 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 uh, WWE for their library and premium live events. And will Paramount Plus, is it going to get the big Frasier bump? They're report, I think they're reporting today or tomorrow. I, I have to look. And we, so Paramount doesn't give you domestic numbers. They give us a global number. And then I just like, I take the percentage, how I estimate what their domestic number is. So I can put it on the chart with the rest of them as I take the percentage of Netflix subscribers that are US Canada. And I just sort of extrapolate it and then takes, takes them off for the, the Canadian popula- population. Do you watch anything on Peacock beyond WWE programming? Not lately, no. Um, a Sunday Night Football, maybe, but I but I've been able to tune in my local NBC affiliate with my antenna the old fashioned way. Yeah, you know what I've discovered on on up here in Canada in the uh, the backwoods that is uh, Canada on our version of the WWE Network, there is stuff that gets uploaded that we don't have access to. I saw everyone talking about this this Vladimir the Superfan documentary. Mm. Not not available on it's on not on version there. of network. No, it's not. We never got the. Uh, they did a few documentaries recently. Uh, one on Cody Rhodes, one on Kurt Angle. Those ones don't seem to make it up here. And you don't get that. Wow. Yeah. Unless any Canadians can uh, point me in the direction, but I, I don't. I don't believe so. It's a very primitive uh, service we have up here. Anyway, Canadian rights up next year. By the way, Those yes, the ten year uh, deal finally coming quiet, to an end. The, the quiet renewal. Well, we'll find out if they uh, if they renew with uh, Roger Sportsnet. Um, moving on from from Peacock, uh, let's talk a little bit about Collision from this past Saturday. This was a very interesting test because on three days' notice, they promoted a first time match between MJF 
and Kenny Omega. This was going up against game two of the World Series and three college football games. And the show as a whole averaged 472,000 viewers and a 0.13 in the 18 to 49 demographic, which is numbers that are akin to a night when they are facing a WWE premium live event. And so on that front, disappointing, but in seeing your quarter hour breakdown, Brandon, like it was very evident that this audience was here for the main event and the fact that it took up uh, 30 minutes of the program um, did see the show. I mean, for that final 30 minutes averaged 557,000 viewers and 214 in the demo. Um, I would still say for an MJF Kenny Omega match, you can certainly argue that are you propping up Saturday night? Because this to me, it's, like, do you come away with this of a conclusion that if you have this big match, is it better served on Wednesday night versus Saturday? Or is this important because you do not want to make collision just the, the show that has a ceiling of how big of a match we're willing to promote on a Saturday night? Yeah, I mean, this can't be Rampage. So they've got to do some some strong stuff on here. In terms of an internal analysis on what this show did, I think these results are pretty encouraging if you're Kenny Omega or MJF, I guess that look, this, this show didn't do a great rating, but look at these last three quarters would have been significantly uh, worse without those two. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a lot of growth in that sixth quarter, the third to last quarter that only has their entrances in it. The, the demo was up 20%. And we could think of stories to explain this where people just tuning in because they were getting, getting seated and getting ready before the big match. Or was it, or was any of this other stuff in here? The, uh, this backstage angle with Chris Atlin or Will Nightingale Sky Blue. Uh, but it did have, have the squash match with Claudio Castagnoli and Tracy Williams. Um, and then the backstage interaction with Smojo and MJF. I would, and there's two, two ads in here. So it's fairly impressive that it went up. 20% of the demo, I would say it's, it's anticipation of the main event, but it did, it did really well internally to the rest of the show. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's really important that collision is, does not turn into rampage. Uh, I seem to remember what it was in an Adam Cole and Adam page match that was thrown on rampage sort of, sort of late in the, in the, in the days of rampage kind of mattering. Um, but yeah, it, collision has to be a, a, another two hours of highly viewed, highly ranking, TV for it to contribute strongly to their TV deal, which is still not done. We still don't know anything about their TV deal. And then Raw on Monday up against Monday Night Football and the World Series doing a 1,391,000 viewers. So this, this would be among the, the least watched episodes of Raw ever, but in the demo, you know, a satisfying number given the competition, a 0.43. Uh, so only down 5% from last week. And uh, this was against, I think, about 15 million viewers watching combined between ESPN and ABC and then uh, the World Series that zero people are watching. So didn't play yes. factor. Uh, baseball's the, dead. The, the demo has been holding up better for Raw than total viewership has, um, coinciding with WB being more viewed by younger people in the last year and a half or so. Um, but yeah, but Raw is is weak, weakening with total viewership in a way that SmackDown is not. SmackDown's still still a little bit up, single digits year over year. But Raw is 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 taking a beating, and um, Monday Night Football doesn't help. But the, but it's not like Monday Night Football wasn't around a year ago. And then so the World Series it continues tonight. They are going into Game Five. So if Arizona wins tonight, that would extend the series to Friday night, which would bump SmackDown which is a taped show this week because of Saudi Arabia. And then if they need a seventh game, that would be Saturday against the collision uh, against collisions episode. And then baseball is done yeah. just for this season, not permanently. Right. And sports media watch, if I can get it up 
in a, in a moment here. Sports Media Watch has has this chart of of the least viewed World Series games ever. I think yes, and three of the four least viewed World Series games ever are this year: uh, the Diamondbacks and the Rangers. So it's clear the Texas Rangers and not Diamondbacks, draw. not draws, not a draw, no, not no. a draw. Arizona and Texas. Who would have, who would have thought here? Well, this is a this is the collapse of baseball as you're seeing it in in real time. Don't have the yeah. glory days anymore of a you know a Toronto Blue Jays Philadelphia Phillies series or Atlanta Braves in 1992. I mean those were those were key. Although I'm sure everyone was freaking out that a Canadian team was going to be in the World Series. How how does that help our American broadcast partner? No 10 million. Come on. That's it. That's it's over. Although I will say going to a Jays game this year, uh, the pitch clock. I cannot give enough thumbs up to the addition of the pitch clock. I mean, this, I is, a this way, is a huge, success, a much yeah. faster paced game now. I know it's probably like a relatively small decrease in game time, but man, it just, it moves so much quicker. Michael Mulvihill, who is, uh, I think the senior vice president of analytics and strategy at, at, at Fox is a good Twitter follow. He's always tweeting uh, about uh, ratings and uh, he's a big champion of the, um, the pitch clock. I think last topic here is one I want to throw out to you a bit of a, a theoretical as we look at Vince McMahon. He is a a, a very debated subject. And we're ta- going to talk about Vince McMahon, the businessman in 2023. I think a lot of the dissension towards Vince McMahon, other than some of his uh, personal choices uh, when it comes strictly to business, typically center around creative. And I don't think there's too many advocates of his that are not directly working for him that are uh, promoting the idea of Vince McMahon being in a creative capacity in 2023. But if we look, over I, I've the, heard from some, but okay. <laughs> if we go back to some of the bigger decisions that he has given a lot of the um, sort of o- o- overseeing of making these decisions, I'm curious what you see as Vince McMahon's last big win. And some of them being uh, the decision to pivot from the WWE network to a licensing deal that they did with, with Peacock. If you're willing to give him, uh, you know, ownership of that decision, the, decision to dump George Barrios and Michelle Wilson that did result in a stock plunge. But the other side of that was bringing in Nick Khan that summer. There was the decision by Vince McMahon to get on a plane and go to visit Cody Rhodes and recruit him directly. And then there was, you know, his elbowing his way back into a WWE position of power, overseeing the merger with the, with the UFC. And now, uh, at least according to the latest uh, Observer newsletter, playing a key part in the Saudi Arabian deal for the UFC. So my question is, as well as what you look at, maybe what is the most valuable, Vince McMahon himself and his value to TKO, is it somewhat uh, understated? Or like, do you feel like there is still a value to this person in, in terms of the day-to-day business when we divorce creative from the equation? So the 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 examples of of good managerial performance here are he he recruited Cody Rhodes. Um, he, I mean, in, in in the case of that one, that's like, I mean, and, and some it's a small one in the big picture that I can but... enumerate is that like, okay, he did something that was competent. He did he did something that was was the kind of performance that you would expect of of a major executive who has s- such power in his company. Um. I, the one that you didn't list that I think is really important is return, you know, going back to the brand split and making SmackDown an important show ahead of TV rights renewals in 2018. SmackDown is way more valuable because of that. I can say I hate it as a fan. 
but look, it, it helped them make a lot more money. And Nick Khan helped with that. Um, and, and the, the, the thing with, okay, he hired Nick Khan, who's worked out really well for WWE. Um, didn't have to fire George Barrows, Michelle Wilson in the way that they did that upset the stock price. Um, but yeah, was, so, and, and, and going to streaming was the right move. Um, licensing that content instead of, um, selling it direct to consumer. I would argue though, I, I, we have, we don't really know what the, what the capability of network subscribers might've been if the product was, you know, reasonably better, which, which was, you know, if we're talking about when that happened, uh, 2019, very beginning of 2020. Um, how many subscribers does, does the W network have if the product is perceived in the way that it is now? I have to be careful with my language because yeah, I, I co-host podcasts with Jesse Collins and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's the perception of at least that the product has improved and we can trust this product because it's not booked by Vince McMahon. Um, how many subscribers do you get then? Um, do you get, you probably don't get all the way to the 3 million, 4 million that George Barrios projected. Um, but maybe you get higher, uh, quite a bit higher so that maybe it's not, it's not a, a deal breaker, whether you should license or not, but you at least leverage a better deal. If you have a lot more subscribers and you have a lot more subscribers that you transfer over, uh, that you market over to, to Peacock, um, that answer the question. I don't know. No, that's what would you look at as? Um, some of the bigger L's in, in the column. I would certainly look at he left such a wide opening for an AEW to enter the marketplace, not just from a audience, um, an audience satisfaction standpoint that they were just craving something alternative that had resources behind it. But so many of the key people that were able to, that were just frothing at the mouth when the offer came to, to exit of, Letting a Chris Jericho go, believing that his value would would be best served in WWE when there were options out there. The fact that it was, you know, a John Moxley that didn't even want to look at the contract offer that he was so disinterested with the WWE version of pro wrestling. Like I think that AEW, like you've mentioned it on your show, like an AEW trying to start today. I don't know if you have the same fan sentiment uh, anywhere near what this was in 2018 going into 2019. Yeah. You don't need an alternative if the primary thing is pretty good. Um, I've said Vince McMahon created AEW. Uh, <laughs> and he, he created that opportunity for there to be a strong alternative. And you can see sort of the precursors of that as well, in terms of the success of new Japan offering a really different product, even still relative to what, what the is today. Um, but you can see that in NXT, the takeover, era of NXT, the reason why that was able to be successful, or at least a large reason, was because it was an, a strong alternative to a, a main roster product that was not serving the the wants of, of a market of wrestling fans. Um, and Vince McMahon disenfranchised not only a sufficient number of fans, but disenfranchised, as you, as you mentioned, an example of John Moxley, disenfranchised a lot of talent that didn't feel creatively satisfied, no matter how much money you threw at them, uh, would John Moxley would not look at what was in the contract, would not look at what was in the envelope. Um, and that created this environment along with the media rights environment with that opportunity. Uh, it created an opportunity for, uh, you know, a kind of person that in, you know, early 2018, we all figured did not exist. That is somebody with enormous access to wealth and connections to 
key people in the TV industry to come along and launch a successful second wrestling brand that had major distribution. Um, but it happened and it happened because Vince McMahon insisted on booking a product that was to his taste rather than the market's taste. We have late breaking news here. We have a number that has come down, Brandon, a number. We have Halloween havoc night two from Tuesday night. Oh, the USA network. So last week, Halloween havoc night one did 787,000 viewers, a 0.21 going against game four of the world series and an NBA game. Tuesday night show, 674,000 viewers, 0.20 in the demo. So uh, the Rangers-Diamondbacks game doing 8.5 million viewers, and the Knicks-Cavs game that went against NXT, 1.3 million viewers, 0.45 in the demo. So um, uh, sizable, well, uh, a relatively loss in viewership uh, demo down from a 0.21 to a 0.20. So not uh, too negligible. And this is Halloween night. You would in theory think that this would be a tougher night. Although all these numbers look relatively similar to what they would have done on any other night. I don't know how much Halloween is a real factor for the audience that is desperately watching Ilya Dragunov make his defense of the NXT championship and what the latest saga is with Trick Williams. Yeah, I have to look. I, uh, on first glance, I'd say yeah, that's a that's a fine number. I have you know no uh, outrage or you know celebration to have about it. All right. Well, there you have it. You are all up to date. And next week we will be focusing on the big TKO earnings call. Are you going to try and get through? Are you going to try and maybe ask a question on the TKO call? Maybe it's a new era. Uh, well, I'm not a stock analyst. I don't, I don't even know how that goes. Um, it has crossed my mind that I should, you know, maybe, uh, you know, send an email and ask if I can, can I get onto this, this call? I, but it, it's, it's stock analysts. It's not even media. And I would say I'm, although I am focused on business, I'm decidedly in the media bucket. And then I've never heard of a media member being on an earnings call. Last prediction. Who, who are the speakers on the call? Who is represented? Ari Emanuel, certainly. Okay. Mark I Shapiro, think- pr- probably. Um, Shapiro's very good in these these settings. Nick Khan, yes, no. Probably Nick Khan. I think because the media deals are so important and he has, you know, he's working directly on them. I think you have to have Nick Khan on there. Um, Dana White, probably not. I don't think so. Um, Vince, he, because he has spoken on earnings calls before, maybe, but he's also like in this sort of emeritus executive chairman role. So I think he's sort of off to the side. Um, I think that's it. Maybe those three. And do we get a 45 minutes into the call? We learn that Paul Levesque's in the background and he answers. A, oh, you know what? We'll probably, who's, who's the TKO CFO now? Um, I should Lawrence know. This, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Okay. So those are yours. Yeah. They, they've also, one of the executives on the UFC side is a uh, Hunter Campbell. He's been having a much more, uh, visibility in a, in a public setting of late. If you remember, he did the, uh, press conference with Jeff Nowitzki recently when the whole USADA thing fell apart. And it does seem like there's more of a public profile now for Hunter Campbell, but there's only so many names. I mean, this is just a, a very bloated executive roster, but we will see what the makeup yeah. is. Uh, I'm I want everybody, I want everybody to call and stick and then make Dana do it. <laughs> What's up, everybody? We had a great quarter. Just screams for 25 minutes. We'll have overmodulated audio here on the show next yeah, week. To, be, to be go cursing. Through. Yeah, it'll be great. All right. 
Well, this was a great show. Thank you again to Kareem Zidane for uh, for joining us. Uh, we hope you enjoyed that conversation. And Wei Ting and I are back tonight at 10 Eastern following Dynamite from the KFC Yum Center. Mm-hmm. The KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. And coming up uh, later on uh, this week, you will have WrestleNomics, free edition of the show. Free for everybody. Yes. If you, if you don't usually listen to WrestleNomics, you're not already a subscriber, this is your chance to sample it for free. The entire episode uh, will be on the WrestleNomics YouTube channel as well as the WrestleNomics podcast feed. However you're paying attention to this now, if you're not listening to it on the post feed, I guess, is, is how you can listen to this Sunday's episode. Uh, it will be live on YouTube and it will be on the, the podcast feed and the YouTube channel right after. We'll right, talk we'll about whatever's news in, in, in the news world. Yes, I'm sure you will have a, a thorough match-by-match rundown of Crown Jewel. Um, lots of uh, lots of takes coming out of uh, Saudi Arabia on, on Saturday. A Saturday afternoon show. Will this affect Collision's number? Collision could have a lot going against it on Saturday. This will be our second example of a uh, afternoon WWE card. On the same day as and there's there's more to come too because you know we got all the other international uh, pay per views are doing. I would guess it's going to have s- some effect. I mean, I, I would guess that, that we're going to see a collision number that's not, you know, I mean, is it going to be up from from last week? Maybe, but um, I, I I expect it to be seeming to be affected by the W show, even though it's not going that head. Could go head to head with uh, Game Seven, so that that's a potential uh, against. Yes the dying sport of baseball. All right. For Brandon Thurston, I am John Pollock. Thanks to everyone that tuned in live or downloaded the show. You can follow us every Wednesday. We are live here three Eastern on the WrestleNomics and post wrestling YouTube channels. That is it. Have a great week. Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover hero bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O dot C-O.